Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, what to do when we are inundated with bad news. We will also discuss goals-based investing, the expression fighting the Fed, and answers to your top questions, including inflation, valuations, interest rates, and yes, the possibility of a recession. That's with our guest, Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer at Horizon Investments. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets as we always do. And we are seeing a lot of really scary headlines and news out there about the markets. One I just read from CNN yesterday said Americans lost half a trillion dollars in wealth in the first quarter of the year. So, of course, here on The Weighing Machine, we try and take a step back from the daily noise and look at the big picture. So I want to ask you to put some of this news that we're getting into perspective for us. Well, the news always is trying to be sensational, of course. And this particular case that you just cited is sort of like, I don't know if I'd say it's a pet peeve, but it's like when they always talk about how much money we lose, they never tell us how much money we gain. And I think just to give a perspective is if you think about it, I think the global stock market is approximately like a hundred trillion and the global bond market's larger. And that doesn't even include real estate. So if all these numbers are right and we lost a half a trillion, which is a lot of money, it's in the grand scheme of things, it just sounds sensational, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really talk about all the money we've just have gained. So it's a battle we all have to fight, including our guest is all the bad news we get from the media. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Scott Ladner is Chief Investment Officer at Horizon Investments in Charlotte, North Carolina. Scott, welcome back to The Weighing Machine. Hey, thanks, Robin. Appreciate it. Hey, Rusty. Hey. Before we get started, of course, Scott, it's the all-important question. And the last time we were on the show, which was April of last year, you chose Metallica's Ride the Lightning as your walk-up song. And at the time, I said... You know, Metallica is a very comic selection, but you know what? That's the only Metallica song we've had as a walk-up, which amazes me. Are you sticking with that pick or do you have a different walk-up song in mind? You know, I think it's probably sort of appropriate right now. You know, it does feel like we're sort of riding the lightning. If I was going to make any kind of modification, it might be towards Sanitarium because that's what I feel like sometimes we're in also. So, but it's going to be one of those two probably. All right. <laughs> there we go. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott, you have been in the industry since 1998, I believe. You've worked at several notable shops. So for those who didn't catch you on the show last time, tell us more about your career and the work you do at Horizon. Yeah, sure. Look, I kind of got into investment management and sort of into the asset management business accidentally. I was going to go get a PhD in economics from Chicago. And then I took an interview at a little shop, a little bank in Charlotte, North Carolina called First Union on the derivatives desk. And the guy kind of sold me like he was a pretty good salesman. <laughs> so, I, so I scrapped the plans to go to go get a, some sort of degree in, in economics that would have been pretty useless and decided to start on the Drew's desk at what was then First Union back in the 90s. 
And I got a chance to start in the equity derivatives group there. So I traded equity volatility for a number of years for the bank. And then I went, went and traded the swap and cap floor book. So kind of the interest rate volatility landscape. And then took those skills and went up to Chicago and worked at a firm called Peak Six, which is another volatility arbitrage firm before starting my own hedge fund down here back in Charlotte when I moved back down to get married. And that ended up imploding. But but as, as during that during that process, I met Robbie Cannon, who was the you know was now the founder of, of Horizon. I uh, was the CEO then. You know, we got to talking, and you know, like what I was good at and what he was looking for somehow was a match. And so I ended up coming into Horizon in the late aughts, and sort of had been here ever since. And so you know, Horizon is a goals based investment manager. We run about eight billion dollars. We're headquartered in Charlotte, and we got about eighty employees. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of questions about Horizon and what you're all doing there, but I want to talk about our first podcast, just a couple different things about it. And well, first of all, regarding that podcast, you nailed a lot of stuff in it. So it was really kind of fun going back to listening to it. And so kudos on a lot of the things you said at that time. The second thing is, and I don't think Robin has ever said this since, but she said it was one of her favorite intros to a podcast we've ever had. And that was primarily because we spent so much time talking about Russian literature which you studied in college. So I am going to segue this into a question here. So so my question for you on this topic is, given your expertise in Russian literature and culture, does this influence your views and what you're saying about the events in Ukraine? And what is your counsel to investors there? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Really kind of from this standpoint, though, it's I don't think that folks here in the West have a really good appreciation for how skeptical Russian people are towards their government. Like Russian people don't expect their government to, to do good things for them, period. Like they expect the government to find ways to get over on them. And so the idea that there'll be some amount of suffering, which will be enough to oust Putin or to, to create some sort of coup environment or, or, or some amount of suffering that will, the people will rise up against it. I just think that amount of suffering is much, much higher than people in the West believe it to be. And so, you know, the, the idea that there's going to be sort of enough pain wrought on the population of Russia through, through all these sanctions to, to, to get a regime change there, the bar is probably just higher than folks think. And so it's probably a little bit of a stickier situation from a sort of leadership standpoint than, frankly, we hope for. But, you know, it is what it is. It does color me from that standpoint, just understanding just the nature of the general psyche of the Russian population is just being they're, they're really tough. And they don't expect the government to do good things for them. So it's just not like it is over here. Okay, well, let's switch to Horizon. And and you mentioned that it's, Horizon is known for goals-based investing. And there are studies that have shown investors in goals-based investment plans tend to do better over time than those taking you know traditional investing approaches. And Horizon calls it gain, protect, spend. So first, how does goals-based investing differ from traditional investing? Yeah, thanks, Robin. Goal-based investing is really an investment process that's centered on an individual rather than centered on an institution. So it's an investment process that is sort of geared towards my mom and not geared towards my mom's pensions plan. And that it's sort of the, you know, the key difference between those two things, obviously, is like mom at some point is going to is going to pass and her pension plan hopefully does not. There's time and there's a finiteness to the nature of, of how we have to manage portfolios in a goals-based framework. And that's one important aspect to it is that when you incorporate time into the investment process very you know, explicitly, both from a mathematical and a philosophical standpoint, you come away with the idea that the portfolio needs to be doing something different when mom's 25 than when she's 75. And that's a trite thing to say, and it's a fairly obvious thing to say, but it does have implications for how you solve the basic investment problem. You know, and that basic investment problem that everybody, that all of us try to solve in this industry is maximize return over risk. And goals-based investing is just the acknowledgement that 
hey, listen, maybe the definition of both return and risk in that equation change as we walk through time. And you know, taking account of that change because of the time aspect associated with goals-based is sort of part and parcel for what it means to be a goals-based manager. And so you know, that's what gives the way that we run portfolios the ability to really be able to be paired with a financial plan. So you know, the other way that folks generally think about us and, and kind of use our, you know, use what we do from an investment management standpoint is to take a financial plan and really productize it. So it's, you know, our best clients are our financial planners. And but it's a convoluted problem to say, okay, I've got this financial plan that has all these cash flows and all these assumptions and all this, you know, all these goals associated with them that are really complicated, you know, like super complex thing. But what do I buy? Like, like I've got this financial plan, but what the heck, you know, what QCIPs do I buy or what funds do I buy or what strategies do I invest in? And what do I do if I get off track? Like all, like all of those types of questions that are really kind of fundamental questions are not trivial at all. And so, you know, what we try to do is provide answers for advisors and for financial planners and provide strategies that can be used in the context of powering a financial plan. And so that's the, you know, we can think about it as sort of like the bridge between a portfolio, between a financial plan and a portfolio. Yeah, I think that's well said. I want to kind of riff on this goals-based investing a little bit more. And we'll put this in the show notes, but your website, which by the way, is very well done. It's very clean, very user-friendly, but you also have a table that sort of outlines sort of goals-based investing versus traditional investing. So my next question is, so looking at goals-based investing, what are the desired outcomes and planning horizons for, again, goals-based investing and sort of those three different tranches that you talk about? As Robin alluded to earlier, Rusty, you know, we call them gain, protect, and spend, and that's just our nomenclature. But you know, really, what when we're talking about gain, uh, that is, you know, the primary objective for those strategies is make money. And typically, you know, that time horizon is you know 20, 30 plus years. I mean, this is a long type of time horizon. Uh, this is the 25, 30 year old client type of time horizon. When we get into protect, uh, that's our middle stage, and that is, you know, that time horizon is definitely condensed. Because it's really the period of time, for, like right before we need the money for retirement, or right before we need the money to buy the boat or send the kid to college or whatever, it's a period of time through which we are most acutely exposed to that sequence of return risk to a market that can really be you know, harmful towards, towards being able to have enough money just to, to accomplish our goals. And so, you know, Prudential had a really nice way to think about this. If you remember that that ad campaign? They had the retirement red zone. You know, we really think about our protection strategies as being that retirement red zone, which is. For most folks, it's like one to five years before they really need the money is when they enter that stage. But you know, frankly, we do see a lot of people using those strategies just, just if they're risk averse. And it's just a way to get in the market with some sort of protection algorithm kind of backing them. At least it gets them in the game. It may not be sort of the traditional way to use it, but, but hey, listen, if it gets you invested, it gets you in the game, then that's great. And then our final stage is, is what we call spend. And that's, you know, that's you know, probably the retirement person. And the goal for that is really just, hey, don't move, in, don't move back into my kids. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And so that, you know, that for a typical retirement horizon, you know, obviously we're talking about 20 to 30 years on something like that. But those those are the three things we're really trying to do is, you know, make, you know, make money, protect money, and eventually find a way to spend it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, one other link is regarding this, the subject matter is a link to this really great white paper on talking about the primary risk of investing. And, you know, a big takeaway for me was just how the definition of risk really changes over an investing life cycle. Can you tell us more about this research and that white paper? Yeah, sure. I mean, it definitely speaks to how we think about the basic investment problem that I alluded to earlier, this, you know, this max return over risk or max objective over risk function that everybody in investment management you know, operates within. And so when we're talking about our gain strategies, where the primary thing we're trying to do is make money, you know, the primary risk for us is volatility. It is, you know, that is 
a standard kind of traditional way to look at the investment problem. It's, you know, maximize return over some unit of the volatility. And this is the sharp ratio maximizing sort of sort of portfolios. And we think that's totally appropriate for somebody that's got a 30, 40, 50 year time horizon. Yeah, that's as close to an institution as mom's ever going to get. Uh, and so that, you know, we think that that framework for, you know, for thinking about the investment problem makes a ton of sense um, for people in that stage. When we get in that protect stage, when we get in that, you know, that middle place where we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're kind of acutely aware of, of the need to spend money fairly quickly or, or in short order, then we really need to transition to a definition of risk that is more based on absolute loss. It's just, did my portfolio go down? And how much did it go down? And it doesn't really matter if the market's down 50 and we're down 40. Like if, you know, if mom's in a protection, if she needs the money in three years and she's down 40, doesn't really care if the market's down 50. Like that's a, that's a big L um, and you're fired and properly so. And so when we're talking about the protection stage, you know, our definition risk for that is a measure of absolute loss or maximum drawdown is the actual metric that we use and peak to trough losses in a portfolio, irrespective of what's going on in the broader market environment. And so, and then when we get to the, to the spend stage, you know, the primary thing that people in spend are trying to do is spend money. And so, you know, this sounds, again, trivial, but if the primary thing you're trying to do is spend money, you know, we believe that the primary risk you have is not having money to spend. And it's, it's just running out of it. It's longevity risk. And, you know, longevity risk can be a complicated concept and it and embeds a whole bunch of other types of risks like, you know, catastrophic markets and inflation and liquidity and, and sequence returns, things like that. At the end of the day, what we're trying to solve for there is being able to spend the most amount of money you can for the longest period of time. That's the investment problem you're trying to solve. If that's where the maximization problem you're trying to solve, you end up with a very different type of portfolio construction than you would if you're trying to solve a min-variance problem for my 75-year-old mom. And you end up with, frankly, just a lot more equities than you would otherwise would have. And they can be kind of protected equities or hedged equities, but it's going to be a far larger equity allocation, a far smaller bond allocation for somebody in that, in that retirement place, just because of this, that's, that's the nature of the problem we're trying to solve. That's really good stuff. I mean, it's like this whole last few minutes just going through that. I mean, it's almost worthy of a rewind. It's just really important concepts. Now, also on your website, you have this is something I mentioned in your podcast last year. I think this is really clever. And it's something called, it's a, a weekly feature called a big number. And usually it's just, you know, the title is like a number. And then you actually have to read the article to say, what the heck are you guys talking about? And I think it's so clever because not only is it insightful, it can be used in the counseling function, but it's a great little conversation starter too. So people can just, you know, if you're just talking to an investor, you have a number to talk about. So it's usually about something, a big picture trend or some interesting data or something. The latest one, and actually the latest one when I was preparing for this a couple of days ago, so you may have a new one already out, but it was called Five Years. So what was five years? What was that referring to? Yeah, it's, it's particularly appropriate today because we're recording this on the day we just got the, the CPI report that is um, fairly challenging. But that five years was referring to the fact that, that workers have lost, you know, writ large in the United States, workers have lost about five years worth of real wage gains uh, due to inflation over the last 18 months. And it's definitely worse for, for higher comp employees. I mean, you know, like the lower quartile employees, and you think about your hourly employees, even though they're having negative wage gains right now, as, as is everybody, frankly, they're actually coming out somewhat ahead, at least over the last 18 months. They're the only ones that really haven't had a sort of a net loss from a real wage standpoint. But it's, that five years is really just referring to the fact that, you know, the inflation can be really challenging when it shows up like it has over the last 12 years, or last 12 years, last 12 months. And it's, it's really done some damage to real wages, like the people, you know, what people actually take home after inflation. 
Well, so that leads us right into some of the hot topics on the minds of advisors and investors lately and some of the questions that we've been receiving. So let's run through them and you can tell us how Horizon is counseling investors and advisors and how you're adapting portfolios in response. So the first, as you talked about, is inflation. So as you mentioned, we've got the CPI report today that inflation has hit a 40-year high, not what we want to hear. So tell us more about what you think about inflation, how you're counseling investors to respond, and what changes you're making in the current environment. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the topic du jour, as we all know. You know, one thing that we do like to like to say to folks when we're talking about inflation is, you know, this is not Milton Friedman's inflation. You know, like, you know, Milton Friedman had the, had the quote about inflation being always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And when he said that in 1962 in a speech in India, it was probably true because we had a fixed rate system, a fixed exchange rate system, we had Bretton Woods, and we had a fairly fixed velocity of money. It hasn't been the case as much lately, though. And so, you know, like inflation, like many concepts in economics, is really fundamentally a supply-demand issue. And we know that we've had really, really weird dynamics going on about supply and the demand side of the macro economy due to COVID and other and, and their government's response to COVID over the last 24 months. And, you know, we think it's starting to heal. At least the supply side is certainly starting to heal some you know, right now. But man, this is going to be a slow, lurchy healing process out of the inflation mess that we're in right now. What we're telling folks right now is we think that really for the rest of this year, we're really going to be fighting a battle between generally falling goods prices and generally rising you know, food, energy, and services prices. The falling goods prices is the really easy part of this equation. We've gotten information out of Target and Walmart and other retailers that said, guys, we just we have way too much inventory. Like we have too much stuff. Nobody wants to buy our stuff. And so you know, they, they've, they've been explicit saying, we're going to be marking things down. And they've got their own little language for marking things down. You know, Walmart calls it rollbacks and Target calls it something else. But at the end of the day, these like, we know retailers are marking this, the price of stuff down. So that we are going to have goods deflation in this country by the end of the year. That's relatively clear. What's not relatively clear is what's going to be going on with the rest of the inflation picture, and especially on the services side. And as I'm sure you guys have know, as you probably booked your travel plans for the summer and try to buy airline tickets or a hotel, good luck. Or I hope that <laughs> you hope you made them like six months ago, because man, it's expensive and man, it's tough right now. And that part of the equation is probably not going anywhere real fast. So you know, really, we have this battle between you know falling goods prices uh, that we think we're probably likely to get for most of the rest of the year and really sticky and annoying services and prices for fun and food and energy that they're just tougher to solve like we're going to be we're going to be mired in for a bit so it's today's report was certainly not uh, not what we wanted to see we thought we might start to get month over month numbers rolling over but that's you know this is an environment in which we have to be hyper bayesian like we got it like it's really tough to forecast so you got to just you know read and react with as much alacrity as you possibly can because forecasting in this environment is really tough. So it's, you know, we'll know when we see it and we think we know what to look for, but we have not seen the peak in inflation, at least as of today. Robin, I was just telling you, we need to be hyper Bayesian. So yes, in our absolutely. No, actually that is fascinating about consumer goods. And I guess it makes me think I should probably hold off on those purchases until later this year, but man, I got to buy airline tickets. I still haven't figured out that strategy on that. I bought a bunch and they were crazy expensive and I still need to buy some more. All right. So given all this the inflationary backdrop, so how is this impacting your view and what you're doing about interest rates? So we're talking short-term rates, long-term rates. We're talking about credit. And what is your take on the expression, don't fight the Fed? There, I just shotgunned you. I just threw like five questions and one at you. <laughs> I'll see if I remember at least two of them. How about that? And that'll be a win. Yeah, look, the rates market is has been fascinating this year. The rates market has its own version of the VIX. It's called the Move Index that a fellow named Harley Bassman invented back in the 90s. 
And that's really just like a market's expectation for interest rate volatility, just like the VIX is the market's some, you know, some measure of the market's expectation for stock market volatility. And that move index is like sticky high. And we've seen how, how volatile rates have been this year so far. Now, the good news on that is, you know, we think that that volatility is going to start to subside, like absent today. Today is obviously a very weird one. But we do think there's some kind of natural boundaries on both on the upside and the downside for, for rates for most of the rest of the year. You know, one of them, you know, we think that we are bounded, like upside bounded. In other words, it's sort of a cap on how high rates can go by what rates are going to do in Europe and Japan. This is a global sovereign bond market. And I think people in the U.S. sometimes lose sight of that fact. But, you know, people in Japan and people in Europe and people in China and other places can buy U.S. treasuries. And they'll buy U.S. treasuries if rates get too far high, like the U.S. rates go too far away from other rates uh, to the upside. You know, if they, if they get too high relative to other rates. And we've seen that sort of behavior before in the past. And so there's a self-correcting mechanism for, for how high U.S. rates can go relative to rates in Europe and Japan. And it's just really hard to think of a case where, where growth in, in Europe and growth in Japan is going to be strong enough to support like a 3% German boon rate or a 2% German bond rate. It's just, that's a tough one to envision. And so we think there's, you know, there is that sort of natural cap that's going to exist for, for U.S. rates as well. So probably, you know, three and a half and 10 years is probably, probably about as high as we're going to be able to get. On the same token, we think we're probably bounded to the downside in rates by how high inflation is and how sticky it's proving to be and how broad it's proving to be right now. And so, you know, we think that we're certainly bounded you know, to the upside by the rest of the world. And we're bound to the downside by U.S. inflation pressures right now, global inflation pressures right now. So, you know, for us, like, we think we're in the kind of in the meat of it right now in terms of where we're going to be in the trading range. If we're just talking about like U.S. 10 year, we think probably two and a half to three and a half is the range and basically violently go nowhere. For most most of the rest of the year, I mean, we might go to two and a half and three and a half. We might touch each of those like twice over the next six months, but probably violently going nowhere is like how we're thinking about the rate complex right now. I love that expression. So again, when it comes to like equity investors, on the expression "don't fight the Fed," how do you talk about that in terms of counsel to investors on that and advisors? (laughs) Thanks for reminding me of the question that I forgot. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's you know, don't fight the Fed in 2022 is it has a different meaning, right? You know, usually people say that to mean, you know, don't short stocks, basically, because the Fed's going to you know, run you over. Well, the Fed this year has told us in no uncertain terms that they want tighter financial conditions. Like that is, you know, that is the that is their hammer for this inflation nail that they see. And tighter financial conditions, like in layman terms, just means wider credit spreads and lower stock markets. Like they've told us that's what they want. And so, you know, don't fight the Fed in 2022 really sort of means heeding that. And the Fed wants, you know, the only thing they can do to fight this inflation problem that they see right now is demand destruction. And uh, if, you know, that is bad for asset prices, like demand destruction is not good for asset prices. They also want unemployment higher. Like that's not good for the real economy. And so, you know, we're in this place right now where not fighting the Fed actually means sort of the opposite than what it's meant much of the last decade. And, you know, not fighting the Fed today means like uh, heeding to the fact that they say they want tighter financial conditions. And that's not a great, you know, probably not a great thing for asset markets for much of the rest of the year, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, let's stick on stock market a little bit longer and maybe a couple more potential negatives is one thing that a lot of advisors, investors like to talk about are valuations for the stock market. And by most valuation metrics, the U.S. stock market is still expensive. What's your take on valuations? And when do you think we're going to start seeing some good deals? You know, I, I don't think valuations are that huge of a problem today. I mean, like it's uh, yeah, I agree with you, Rusty. Historically, they are certainly on the on the expensive side of medium. 
But we're also in a really, really low rate environment still historically. So like if we're going to use historical valuations, like we also have to take account of the fact that we have still very low rates relative to history as well. And so, you know, for us, like the, you know, the story of the first half of this year in the equity markets was, you know, multiples got creamed, PEs went down, and that was a largely reflection of real interest rates basically getting back to zero, like from a deeply negative territory. And so, you know, if real rates go materially higher, if we get like 1% positive real rates, then yeah, I mean, certainly valuations and multiples can go lower from there and they will if the Fed is successful in getting real rates to, you know, say 1%. But if real rates kind of hang out around zero here, we think a lot of the wood has been chopped, at least on the valuation compression standpoint. And it's going to be really an earnings story the rest of the year. All right. Well, finally, the big one. So lots of investors and advisors are asking us this question, and that is, what do we think about the possibility of a recession? So how are you counseling your clients about this? Today, it's not our base case, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's, that it's off the table. I mean, it's, it's, this is probably like a 40-60 call for us right now. You know, we think it's probably a 60% chance we can avoid recession, like a 40% chance we hit it. And really for us, it all comes down to the, the behavior of the U.S. consumer. And, you know, we got we, we didn't get great data on that today either, because, but it's, here's, here's, here's how we're thinking about the consumer. The consumer, like, they're objectively in great shape. You know, from an employment standpoint, from a savings standpoint, from a net worth standpoint, from a from a debt standpoint, like all the sort of the big metrics you would think to look at from a cash flow standpoint, from all the big metrics you would think to look at, the consumers are really in a pretty good spot historically. They're basically rich. Like people are pretty rich and they're employed. Okay. So objectively, from the ability to spend standpoint, they've got the ability to spend. Problem is, they just feel awful. I mean, like they feel terrible. You hear it, you feel it talking to clients, you, you see it in all the sentiment surveys about, you know, we got some more data today about just how bad folks feel. From a sentiment standpoint, you know, whether it's less, you know, sentiment buying a, about buying a house or a car, about expectations for the future, about how they're feeling about inflation and how that, that impacts their lives, you know, all of those things are sapping their willingness to spend. So, you know, they have this great ability to spend in, in terms of their, their, their overall financial picture, but their willingness to spend is really being tested right now. And so, you know, we think that the consumer is going to look through some of this stuff and be able to still go on vacation this summer and spend money and, and, and be okay. It's not a, like a certain call by any stretch of the imagination. But if they do, or if they do spend money this summer, if they go on vacation, if they do stuff, then earnings will certainly slow down. Generally, they'll be okay overall. And so we, you know, we would think that you know the market's within five to you know five to eight percent of the bottom is, is probably where we'd say if the consumer spends and they kind of buoy us a little bit. The other side of that though is that if the willingness to spend really comes through and they say, listen, we just we we're just going on strike, we've had enough, and we're scared, and we're and and we're just going to hunker down. If they do that, then an earnings recession is certain, and and an overall U.S. recession probably becomes the base case. And then we're probably talking about another twenty percent or so in the market to go down before we actually be able, are able to find a bottom. So that's, you know, not the message I really like to deliver. I'm, not, I'm definitely not a bear most of the time. And like I said, it's not, that's not our base case. That is the thing we're really watching carefully. It's like that we really think most of this hinges on the consumer because we really think the market hinges on, uh, on earnings uh, right now. And that's the story for at least the next few months for us. Totally plausible. Before we move topics, are there any other questions you're getting from clients right now? The other thing folks want to talk about, and I'm sure you guys have gotten questions on this too, is like stagflation. Or is like, is this like the 70s? Yeah. You know, and, and I don't, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear how, you're, how you guys are thinking about it. Like we, we don't really see that because we're not seeing like the hoarding behavior that you typically see. If expectations for future inflation by consumers is really high. If, in other words, if you think prices are going to continue to go up for a long time, for years on end, you buy today, you hoard. And that's not the behavior that we're seeing right now. Like people think it's a terrible time to go out and buy stuff. That's one thing that we don't see as supporting sort of the stagflationary picture. 
The other one is, is just the dynamicism of the U.S. economy is way different now than it was in the in the 70s. You know, this is a services-based economy, obviously. And so that type of economy, that type of market really drives productivity. And if you have really strong productivity growth because you have great technology advancements in a service-based economy, you have really great productivity growth. And that really drives unit labor costs down. With low unit labor costs, it's really, really tough to get a sustained wage price spiral. And so that, like, that's the other kind of main thing that we think this you know, it doesn't really line up from a stagflationary standpoint, but I'd love to hear kind of how you guys are thinking about that too. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that there's definitely differences in the economy from the 1970s, but I think one parallels thinking about the markets. Now, a lot of times people are talking about how the current correction is similar to the dot-com bust 20 years ago where, you know, growth names sort of cracked and then um, everything else started to outperform on a relative basis, whether you're you know, value stocks or smaller companies, international, real assets, that stuff like that. But the difference, of course, with dot-com is during that era, that most of those companies really weren't making any money. So now you've got like the big tech stocks, which are starting to come under pressure. So it's just like the nifty 50 from the 1970s. Instead of a nifty 50, we got like a nifty five. So these are great companies. We know they're going to stick around for a long time, but they've had such a run up in price that the potential is they can now, you know, underperform for years ahead, if not decades ahead. I mean, one little factoid is like, you know, some of these stocks from the 1970s, they didn't hit new highs for a decade. And I think some of them took like even like a couple decades to get back to their highs from before. So I think the parallel to the economy that you're talking about, there are big differences, but we could have parallels to the nifty 50 in terms of the market. Yeah. I mean, Japan's a point in case for that too, right? I mean, like, yeah, when when things get too extended, it can take a very long time to come back. Yep. All right. Let's do some happy talk now. (laughs) All right. So Horizon Investments is also known as a leading ETF strategist. And as we know, the ETF industry is a great wave to be on. You know, the industry in general, we've seen outflows this year. You know, investors have been really down, except in the ETFs, they continue to be really strong in terms of inflows. What is your outlook for the ETF industry and can anything slow it down? You know, I think, we think it's pretty dang healthy for us. I mean, there is, there's new entrants coming in all the time. So like that's healthy from a competition standpoint. We're having great ideas like bubbling up to the surface and being implemented in the ETF wrapper. I would say there's a limit to that. And so, you know, in terms of the things that could slow its ascent, there are some great innovations happening. But inside of some of these ETFs, they're so complex. And you have derivative structures inside of them, or you have even like over-the-counter derivative structures inside of some of them, which is crazy to think about inside of a, a daily traded product. But at the end of the day, mom needs to know how to use these things. Like it's, I mean, it's great to have the ability to use it, but the knowledge about how to use it and generating expectations for, you know, like what happens if, what happens when the market's up, what happens when the market's down, what happens when with rates go up or whatever. You know, those expectations are becoming like more and more detached from the products that retail investors are using to generate returns and exposures. And so if I was going to say that, you know, if I was going to push the warning light, it would be, we need a much better education about how to use some of these products. They're great exposure profile builders. You can do a lot of really neat stuff with, with many of these, and these these new products. But the ability to know, understand how to use them and the ability to generate expectations for returns in different types of markets is probably, you know, anyway, that's in kindergarten, but when these when these things are all they're all PhD candidates. That's the key to the successful use of any investment strategy is understanding, explaining how they behave through various market conditions. I completely agree. So you talked about innovation in the ETF landscape. Is there, is there, are there any areas of innovation that particularly excite you? 
you know, I think these defined outcome ETFs are, are really interesting. I think there is still some more work to be done on fleshing them out a little bit more and, and getting a little bit more expectational certainty about how they're going to perform. But they're very interesting products with a very interesting return profile associated with them. Those are pretty cool. And there's also some pretty complex fixed income products that are out there that are giving people the ability to get exposure to parts of the fixed income landscape that were just inaccessible for mom and pops. I mean, we're talking about CLOs, CVX products, and, you know, like all sorts of sort of interesting things that are really, really nice to have from building blocks. Uh, we just got to make sure that we're using them in a way that, does, that makes some sense for the investor. All right. Well, let's switch gears to some of our favorite questions here on the show that we like to ask our guests. And a new one that we've added to the mix since we had you on last. Considering your experience in the investment industry, how do you invest personally? How much does it differ, if at all, from how you manage money professionally? Yeah, so this is going to be a really boring answer, <laughs> but it is what it is. Like, you know, 100% of my liquid assets are in Horizon Mutual Funds. I literally have no investments outside of that. And so, it, like, I guess by definition, it doesn't differ at all from how we how I manage money. That's where all my liquid net worth is. Yeah. Oh, heck, that's a good answer. You know, the managers <laughs> that eat their own cooking tend to uh, work for firms that, one, not only have higher performance in terms of their investment strategies, but also, you know, happier workforce. You know, the studies that kind of correlate to that. So, that's great. Okay, here's another one of our new questions and uh, favorite as well. In, in our profession, since we're all basically, you know, mental athletes, we have an obligation to perform at a high level. So, how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure you're performing at a high level? Yeah, ask my wife that, and she say I don't. Uh, but we're gaining <laughs> on it. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm gaining on it. Look, it's it's a struggle, like like everybody is. It's there's a lot of demands on on everybody's time. We've got three kids; they play sports. I'll be on baseball fields from the time I leave this podcast until until Sunday night, and it's like that every weekend until we get past Thanksgiving. And so it's you know like weekends are just booked, but that's great. I wouldn't trade it for the universe. And so you know when do you find time for yourself? When do you time find for your wife or your husband or whoever? It's, you know, for us, it's like we just shifted everything. So we just shifted everything like two or three hours earlier than when I was in school in Chapel Hill. Like, I, you know, used to go to bed and get up at certain hours. And now that is like shifted by a lot. So now we get up at five and, and we go to bed at nine or 10 instead of, you know, like two or three or four hours past that. That's where we find, our, you know, at least our time. I don't think that's a you know a unique story, but but it is, um, it can be a tiring one occasionally. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right. Well, before we let you go, we want to ask, do you have any content recommendations for advisors and investors, books they should read, podcasts they should check out? You mean other than this one? Other than this one, of course. This is number one. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a layup, right? Exactly. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, y'all, y'all obviously do amazing work. I mean, like you, you have on such an interesting guests and you do such a great job with them. Thank you. Yeah, you know, this is an excellent one that, that you guys do really, really high quality. Yeah, you know, the only other kind of financial one that I really listen to, actually, to be honest with you, is Odd Lots. There's folks at Bloomberg that that put that out. It is, you know, interesting topics. I mean, like when lumber was going crazy like a year ago, like they had on like a lumber guy. And so like somebody that traded lumber futures for his living, like that was such a thing. But, you know, I learned a lot from, from listening to a lumber guy because that was that was important at that time. But, the, you know, they just have on really interesting guests as well. So like, you know, the odd lots, I think, on from Bloomberg is a pretty good one. You know, in, in terms of research and stuff that I read, like if I'm out of work, I don't generally read work stuff. I don't generally, I mean, I read like fiction when I'm not here, but, but obviously a large part of this job is reading and consuming information and try to distill it in like a mosaic out of it to kind of build your picture for the world. Get tons of research from the sell side on the, from the derivatives research, uh, from all the big banks and everything. But, but uh, kind of off the beaten path wise, there are a couple of folks that I think do, do a really nice job. One of them is a fellow named Brent Donnelly. 
they face a foreign exchange expert. Uh, he works at a, a firm called Spectrum now. He puts out a, like, a daily newsletter called AMFMFX or something like that. But Brent Donnelly, he's, he's also on Twitter. He's excellent, really, really smart guy. And then there's, there's a lady that used to work at the Fed named uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth that has a firm called Quill Intelligence. And she puts out a daily note also that's, that's usually pretty thought-provoking and original. So things that have that combination, especially if they're published on a daily basis, which I don't know how those folks do, like come up with something original and interesting on a daily basis, super hard to do. I think both of them do it. Those are two that I think are, are pretty interesting reads. Nice Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show again. And how can listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about what you're thinking and doing? Come to our website. It's horizoninvestments.com. There's sales maps on there and there's different ways to, to get in touch with all folks, with people, all sorts of people, email addresses. But yeah, just come to the website, navigate from there and, and uh, you know, we'd love to chat. Cool. Awesome. Well, Scott, definitely appreciate your time. And of course, we'll make sure this is an annual visit. Uh, we'll have you on next year. And it's Friday afternoon when we're recording this. But after this podcast, I'm sure the weekends are going to start beginning for all of us, except I have to write commentary. So I already know what I'm going to listen to next. And that is, of course, the Sanitarium by Metallica. <laughs> so that'll get me fired up you know, to get to work a couple more hours here. So thanks for that recommendation and for all the good stuff you just provided. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.